Thanks so much, Tim. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome. Um, as Tim was saying, I'm Matt Troy from The Times. I'm, I edit the uh, morning email called Red Box, the podcast called Red Box. I do uh, column on a Saturday and basically anything else they want me to do uh, to make sure I don't get the sack. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, in this session is what Brexit has done to the UK's political parties at Westminster and what the future implications uh, of that might be. Because obviously we know what happened uh, in the general election. Uh, which I'm sure we'll touch on with the panel, but also going forward, what impact might uh, Brexit have? Uh, we've got a, a fantastic and uh, quite large panel, so I'll, I'll keep my uh, waffling to a minimum. We've got uh, Dr Philip Lynch from the University of Leicester, uh, Liz Silver-Roberts, a Pi Cymru MP, uh, Antoinette Sandbach, former Conservative MP for the Lib Dems uh, at the last election, uh, Margot James, former Conservative MP, and on the end, Stephen Kinnock, uh, Labour MP. So we've got a a full, not the full, but a, a pretty full uh, political spectrum uh, to cover. Um, in no, let's start at this end for um, uh, ease. Uh, Stephen, do you want to just talk us through on the exam question? What has Brexit done to the Labour Party? Well, <laughs> it, it, it's, according to my brief, you've got three to five minutes, so. Are, are expletives allowed? <laughs> Right. Uh, well, in a nutshell, I think uh, clearly the position that we took uh, on backing a second referendum ended up being disastrous for our party. Um, uh, I was a part of, a, in the end, what was quite a small minority of, of Labour MPs who uh, did not support the party's shift to uh, a second referendum. And, um, and I think that's because we could see the writing on the wall. We could see that uh, if you um, have a very large uh, referendum in 2016 uh, and then you stand for election in 2019 on a platform which is in effect saying to those 17.4 million people, uh, we're going to reverse or seek to reverse um, what you voted for, you shouldn't be surprised that they don't support you in a general election. And that, I'm afraid, is just a sort of reality of it. Um, I think that Conservatives, uh, of course, played a more uh, canny game uh, in terms of um, having simplistic sound bites and, and uh, chiming with what people were looking for. But I think there's also a fascinating process going on now of walking away from what was a so-called oven-ready deal. It turns out that this oven-ready deal was actually way at the back of the frozen food sections because um, it, he, the, everything that the, the Tories have done since uh, the 13th of December has been to pretty much brazenly tear up the commitments in the political declaration, particularly around uh, level playing field. Um, I think what we should have done uh, is to have stuck with our 2017 referendum position, which was that we respected the result of the referendum. Uh, that was our manifesto in uh, the 2017 general election. Um, uh, but that we would get a deal that would protect, uh, to the greatest extent possible, the jobs and livelihoods of the British people. And I think if we'd stuck to our guns on that, then in 20, by the time 2019 general election came around, we would have left the EU with a, a softer version of Brexit. And I think that would have really divided the Conservative Party. So there would have been some um, p political benefits uh, to that position uh, as well. And, and of course, in the end, we didn't do that. And the results were clear for all to see. And the Ashcroft poll of 10,000 people, 73% of Labour to Conservative switchers did so on the basis of wanting to get Brexit done. And the higher the Leave share, uh, the greater the Tory gain. 
a two point, only a two-point swing in seats with a leave vote below 45%, rising to a, a whopping eight-point <coughs> swing in seats that voted above 60% for leave. So what we should have done is gone into the um, cross-party talks in good faith. We should have accepted uh, the outcome, which was 10 pretty major concessions from Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, and we could have, on that basis, uh, got a deal done, had a softer version of Brexit, and then I think a really good chance of at least a hung parliament, if not a, a Labour majority, in an ensuing general election. But what next? I mean, that's enough on, on the past. Um, looking to the future, I think, you know, we, we've got to recognise that we lost a lot of trust uh, because of perceptions about our weak and incompetent leadership, perceptions about our manifesto, uh, which was seen as a Christmas wish list. But Brexit also played a major role in undermining trust. And those three issues were interlinked. So how do we behave now with these negotiations going forward in such a way as to rebuild trust? And I think we've got to go back to the basic principles of good opposition, which is to be robust, but also to be constructive. Call out the government for rescinding on major commitments that were made, which were the basis of the general election and the political declaration, but also say, look, the European Union also needs to uh, be realistic uh, and uh, where we, we can have non-regression clauses rather than dynamic alignment. I think we should be uh, looking at those uh, possibilities in a very uh, constructive way. Uh, we've got to fight a no-deal crash-out uh, at all costs. I think the chances of that are increasing exponentially due to the rhetoric uh, uh, that the government is coming forward with and the way they've behaved since the general election and, and make sure that we point out what the, the catastrophic consequences of crashing out uh, without a deal. Uh, we've got to stick up for our constituents on that. I think another big piece of this is going to be immigration. Uh, clearly the government's come forward with immigration proposals. We're dealing with an 80-seat Tory majority. Those proposals are going to go through. Uh, we, I think we should be, rather than saying, let's go back to free movement of labour, which is just not going to happen, it's not realistic, and we've got to make sure we don't just virtue signal on these things. We've got to live in the real world. This is about real politique and being an effective opposition. Let's actually point out, in the devil is in the detail on immigration policy, you know, it's completely wrong to class care workers as not being skilled people. And that's something that we've got to address, particularly in terms of the crisis that we're facing. So I think in conclusion, I would say that what this has meant for the Labour Party has been disastrous, catastrophic for us, and we've ended up with an 80-seat Tory majority and probably a no-deal Brexit, rather than the possibility of a soft Brexit uh, and a possible hung parliament, uh, if not a, Tory, a Labour majority. Uh, and that is um, something that we've got to accept. Let's not be in denial about that. Let's learn the lessons of that. And let's move away from virtue signalling and into realpolitik. Uh, and I think if we can do that over the coming uh, months and years, then we will be s s once again treated as a serious opposition, rebuilding trust in those red wall seats, which we have to do, and begin to look like a government in waiting again. Thank you. <coughs> okay, there's uh, quite a lot there, um, Stephen. I've resisted the temptation to interrupt you, but I might do that um, later on. Um, uh, Marco, let's now talk about the Conservative Party, both what, what's happened for the Conservative Party as it is now, but also the Conservative Party as you uh, might have liked it to have been, uh, and the impact the Brexit's had on it. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, and uh, thank you, uh, Tim, for inviting me here today. It's a real pleasure to be with you all. Um, I think the, the effect of Brexit on my party really has, has been that it has facilitated a resounding victory 
for the hard Brexiteers of the Conservative Party, who, when I entered Parliament in 2010, were in a minority. And they were in a minority in Parliament, less of a minority when you look at the, the party's membership in the country, but probably still a minority, because, of course, in those days, in 2010, Brexit wasn't on the agenda. But one still had to deal with people who were um, viscerally anti the EU and were inclined to blame the EU for anything and everything. Um, and I think what happened during my time in Parliament is that um, the, the people who were sort of in charge of the Conservative Party and had been, you know, uh, for, for, for decades, going back to the days of Macmillan, um, always had to manage a party which was to the right of its MPs. In fact, uh, there was an amusing letter in the Times during the 90s saying that the, the job of Conservative ministers in government was to protect the public from the membership of the Conservative Party. Um, anyway, um, over since 2016, there's been a, a success, if you like, for the strategy of unifying the right. Um, the right wing of politics was um, dismembered by the emergence of UKIP, uh, and um, there were voices off all the time calling for the reunification of um, the, the mainstream Conservative Party with the people who left uh, to either vote for or join Bre the Brexit Party or both. And um, once uh, the referendum and the aftermath of uncertainty uh, and the, the playing to people's fears that their vote wouldn't be respected, um, took their course. So, of course, the people from Brexit Party rejoined the Conservative Party um, and, and the resounding victory of Boris Johnson in the leadership election last year was testimony to that, um, the end of that battle. Electorally, um, the Prime Minister no doubt tapped into a public move of huge frustration and desperation to see the country move on from that stage of the Brexit debate in which Parliament had been mired for close on three years. And I, I did some canvassing and campaigning in very, very different seats. Um, and I, I definitely felt this on the doorstep far more than I had done as a constituency MP. And there were so many people who supported our membership of the European Union, but have become so frustrated and so demoralised. Um, and businesses, of course, were crying out for some certainty. Um, and so that was tapped into, but no doubt helped by the fact that um, Labour was split, um, in my view, had an unelectable la uh, leader. And it was interesting, when I went to Conservative seats, uh, there was a, a fear of Corbyn. But in um, the more Labour-held seats I went to, um, that switched to the Conservative Party, there was a deep antipathy to him. I felt it was quite distinct and most interesting. Um, and that had to do with the perception among Labour voters that this was a man who was far too friendly with terrorist leaders and, and, and they didn't trust him to defend the country's interests. Um, fairly or unfairly, that is what I found. Um, added to the fairy tale manifesto to which Stephen's already alluded. And of course, the other thing that was helpful um, to the Prime Minister was the collapse of the Liberal Democrats from the point at which they were expecting to win a huge number of seats. We're talking about 
getting an overall majority at the beginning of the campaign, which obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, now looks utterly ludicrous. But what was really, I think, the nail in their coffin was the emergence of this, well, the very sudden um, transformation to this uh, revoke Brexit position, which was uh, completely untenable. So all of those things, I think, conspired to give the Conservatives an 80-seat majority. Um, I think the effect on the Labour Party um, is hard of Brexit, is hard to unpick from the effect of a leader that next to no one thought was acceptable as PM, um, the acrimony over the leader and his team and the awful strain of anti-Semitism which they have not been able to get on top of and most people suspect that is because they lack the will to do so. And it's quite hard to extract the effect of Brexit from the effect of all those other sort of cross-currents. Um, looking to the future, for my last minute, um, I think the fact that the Conservatives now have an 80-seat majority means that they can park Brexit, because of course it's not done, as, as we know, there's more, more to come, but at least that, that can be dealt with by the specialists, by the negotiating team, and um, whether or not they decide to live by this commitment not to extend, or whether this dreadful uh, coronavirus perhaps gives them a window to, to actually extend for a, a certain period to get a, a better deal. Um, I think um, that the majority of the government effort one, that is now, of course, invested in, in the coronavirus, but once that hopefully passes, um, then I think we will be back to a point where the government can focus on the things that it is now passionate about. And um, I think the thing that really motivates me is this commitment to science and doubling the research and development budget, more visas for scientists. Um, many of the ideas that we developed as part of the industrial strategy when I was a business minister are now given extra impetus. Um, and it's all about the levelling up agenda, which is something that I've always felt very passionate about, so I'm very pleased to see. Um, and I think that the, the, the key sort of strategic issue behind this levelling up agenda is a realisation that for um, several decades we have assumed that a, a rising tide lifts all ships. And, and it did in the, in the 70s and the 80s. Um, there was more trickle-down effect from economic growth to everybody in society. Those days came to an end sometime around the late 90s, noughties. Those, came, those days came to an end, and we all know the research that demonstrates that um, people born since 1985 or whatever um, are less likely to do as well as their parents, certainly not better. So I think that this is a recognition that those days are over and that um, intervention by the state... Um, is, is something to be embraced rather than guarded against at all costs and something to be got right. And the challenges, I think, that will come will be um, to resist the, the political pressures to um, invest public money in things that are essentially subsidy of something that perhaps is coming to the end of its natural life as a company, as a sector, um, and really invest in the future. Um, and I think that's, that's what's uh, really exciting and it will excite people in the regions. It's not just, I'm a Midlander, it's not just the Midlands and the North 
Um, it's definitely the southwest as well that needs to be levelled up. And let's not forget the inequalities within regions. I'm about to start a new position um, in Coventry in Warwickshire, um, which is only about 25 miles from my old constituency in Stourbridge. But it's light years from the black country in terms of its um, economic development and opportunity and aspiration. And it's those gaps within regions that need to be tackled as well as um, the regions versus um, uh, London and the South East. And I'm excited about that particular aspect of the government's agenda. It was interesting, you've, you've slightly touched on the, there was a, I can't remember it was last week or the week before, there's a story about how basically inside government they've banned the use of words like Brexit. That is just an historical event, which has already happened. Uh, and it's, you know, and that, there's a clear attempt within government to sort of move on and, and, uh, and talk about other things. They were just hoping it wasn't to talk about a virus uh, that might kill us all. Um, <laughs> Antoinette, let's talk about uh, the Lib Dems. You stood for the Lib Dems uh, in the election. Yeah. Margot touched slightly on uh, what happened. Um, your reflections on that, but also I've always thought that one of the, the big problems for the Lib Dems was actually the, uh, the Brexit party and their decision not to stand in so many seats, that actually if they'd taken five, ten thousand votes in some places, that would have opened it up for the Lib Dems. Well, I, I would actually put it a, di a different way, and I would say it was the Labour Party's failure to deal with the coalition that had been built up um, together with Plaid Cymru and, uh, and the others to stand aside in, in seats where the Lib Dems were clearly the second runners to the Conservatives. Um, that was a real mm -hmm. tactical error in terms of um, trying to get a, a second referendum. Um, a bit like Stephen, I was actually a, an opponent of the second referendum for, for a very long time, and it was when the choice of uh, No Deal and Remain were, were effectively the only two choices in Parliament that I came over to the idea of a confirmatory referendum that we need to check with the public. And I thought the Lib Dems had a very clear position on it. Every single Lib Dem MP had been elected on the basis that they opposed uh, Brexit, that they um, would uh, fight it, and therefore they had a mandate to oppose uh, the government and, and vote against all the legislation. Um, I feel, from my experience in Westminster, where the failure was, was the failure to put in place a safety net. So there are numerous opportunities, both through the meaningful vote and uh, through uh, some of the compromise agreements, like Common Market 2.0, which I worked with Stephen on and others, where it would have been possible to, to put a, a, a legislative safety net or even potentially get a majority. But a tactical decision was taken by People's Vote to oppose um, the, any compromise agreement because they felt if there was going to be a second referendum, they would have a better chance of winning it uh, between No Deal and, and Remain. And that was, uh, to my mind, the biggest mistake that was made in the last Parliament, not to put that safety net in there. And it's probably, uh, I was a fan of the coalition. I think uh, Labour, uh, the Conservatives and the Dems working together had been a very effective government where the Liberal Democrats provided a break on uh, some of the more extreme parts of the, of the Conservative Party and have really pushed forward their agenda on climate change and, and put in worlds, you know, moved the Conservative Party in a funny sort of way much more towards the centre ground, and that was a real achievement of the Lib Dems. And the failure to uh, look at that 
to put that safety net in and, and think the worst and think what if, I think is something that was very um, difficult and, and has will lead to long-term consequences for the UK. I think the second policy, which uh, Margot touched on, was the revoke policy, which was an absolute disaster. People did not understand it. They thought it was undemocratic. It played very badly on the doorstep. They didn't understand that that meant that they would get a second referendum. And I think it damaged the Lib Dem very clear brand to say, we are arguing for a confirmatory referendum to check that this is the type of Brexit that you voted for, and we will argue for Remain. Um, and that move to a revoke uh, position, I think, fundamentally damaged the brand of the Lib Dem uh, party and made it very difficult for us to sell on the doorsteps. And that's certainly my experience when I was out knocking on doors um, in, in, in my constituency, where people just didn't understand it. Um, the second big mistake I feel uh, of that the Liberal Democrats made was um, obviously supporting the call for a general election. Um, <laughs> we should have waited until yes. after um, the January deadline, and it's something that I've raised internally, but we, we are where we are, and we need to move on. And I think uh, the Lib Dems really have a role now at looking at COP26 and really holding the government to account in terms of looking at the future. Uh, we're all focused, or a lot of the media is now focused on, on COVID-19, but the real challenges to our economy and some of the real issues that will arrive uh, uh, around global movements of people will come out of climate change. And we really, I think the challenge for the Lib Dems is to be about a, to be a party or to, to, we had a brilliant manifesto. I really, I mean, our manifesto on business was excellent. We had a really good manifesto that I was very, very proud to stand on, but nobody knew any of our policies apart from our policy on Europe. And I think the Lib Dems need to regather and refocus and use the leadership election for two things, to refocus <coughs> on their really good policies and get those known and out there. And secondly, to build on the strength that they have built up from bringing both former Conservatives and former Labour members of Parliament into the party. Because if the Lib Dems are going to achieve electoral success and there is no point being in a political party if you cannot get your policies implemented, then they need to draw together the knowledge from the Conservative and Labour MPs that moved to them and, and use that to, to uh, move forward. And I think there's a real opportunity there for the future. And I think also that the opposition parties have got to get together and push for a more representative yeah. political system. We have to have a single agreement on what kind of proportional representation we want. I think we have to work with the Labour Party, the Scottish National Party, all the other parties to get a more representative uh, parliament. Because I think one of the things that has caused the big splits that we have in our society is people feeling that they're voting, uh, they think their vote doesn't count, that their voice isn't heard, and therefore it allows the fringes. And I think we should look, we've got um, proportional forms of proportional rep representation in all the devolved administrations um, across the UK, and we should be looking at having it in our parliament too. Quite a lot there. It seems to be a theme emerging. That the, the way forward is to stop talking about Brexit and, and, and talk about other things. Um, Liz Sutherland-Roberts, what about Plyde? And also, if you could touch... I know the, there's a risk that you always get asked to be the sort of 
spokesman for the whole of Wales as well, but the impact of Brexit on Welsh politics for, for people who might not know it as well. I mean, first of all, I'll explain that my name is Liz Abel Roberts. I'm the parliamentary leader of Plaid Cymru. There are four Plaid Cymru MPs. Um, we got our, our fourth, the first fourth for a long time back in 2017. And although the general pattern was that we were squeezed in Wales, in fact, for, th for three of our constituencies, we increased our vote. And for two of them were previously marginal, we increased them that they are no longer marginal. Um, just to take a bit of a step back, I think looking at, back at last year, it's an entirety. If you go back to the May 2019 European elections, actually in, in Wales, for the first time ever, Plaid Cymru beat Labour. And then we see this completely different pattern uh, with considerable success amongst the Tories in the, in, the, in the autumn, the winter election. So I think to sum it up, looking at the whole of the year, that what we had then was, was, was great volatility. And, and, and to a degree, we'd now landed with a government with a considerably greater majority. But nonetheless, that's not necessarily the pattern that you would have rationally expected at certain stages throughout last year. Now, um, Antoinette touched upon the question of the coalition. Of course, what we did see happening in, in Wales and elsewhere as well is, is the Brexit party and the Tory party coming together. And again, it does beg the question with Labour. If Labour had been prepared to work with other opposition parties, then the outcome might, might have been different. I think certainly in terms of the mathematics, it might well have been different. And the one thing that I would say is going back to the extraordinary 18 months that led up to the election in the autumn last year, um, being in the opposition leaders meeting, meet, meetings that happened over the summer and into the autumn, what we repeatedly warned against, and I know that some of the leaders, the senior leaders in the Labour Party knew this, they saw this as well, was that, look, if we go into a general election now, this is what the result is going to be. It was entirely predictable. And we, at the time, made the unpopular line, because it doesn't goes down well actually to say, look, we don't think a general election is in the best interest, but our principles were, we campaigned for Remain, we were campaigning for a people's vote. The point would have come when there would have been no other option, if a general election didn't occur, to move ahead, there would have had to be a people's vote. And we said about this, in the hindsight of saying, I told you so is not particularly an endearing line, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it, you know, we, we, we warned of this at the time, we warned um, the, the Lib Dems at the time that this would happen, and it was actually very, very frustrating to see that, that people coming together, announcing that there would be a general election, the SNP coming on board with that, Labour coming on board with that, and then everything had the, 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 the snowball effect. Now, moving on ahead, I think one of the, 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 the conclusions that you, that you might come to from this year is that sense of electoral fluidity that nonetheless has been frozen into the, the majority of the government as we have now. But I don't think the voters are going to behave in the same way as they have done in the past. The fact that they have moved, perhaps supporters of Labour in the past have come over to the Tories, doesn't necessarily mean that they will continue to do that. I think it also shows that in that very statement, really, the first-past-the-post system in Westminster does not represent people's views in its entirety. And that, that sense of dissatisfaction um, is tied in with that system. And we will see how the elections in the, in, in the, in the, the devolved nations 
how those play out, where they do have a, a variety of, 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 you know, a version of proportional representation, and how these then play out in the elections next year. The other thing I particularly want to say, um, looking back over the time since I became a member of Parliament, which was in 2015, but seems like to have been forever, and in my own career, I've gone from being a journalist, a newspaper, a local newspaper journalist, which is not generally accounted amongst the most um, loved of professions, possibly. <laughs> I, had I, a, I loved my time as a local newspaper journalist. I had a, a, a socially um, conscious uh, respite as a, an FE lecturer when I wasn't amongst the most sort of distrusted profession. And then I went back to being in a distrusted profession when I became a member of parliament in 2015. But, of course, what we had at the same time, and Marco was talking about this in the sense that as a society, our politics has moved further to the right. We have had a... I don't like to use the word just press because that's, that's too narrow and it's too specific. But there has been a way of portraying parliamentarians and politicians as a whole as being bad and a nuisance and a hindrance and somehow or other stopping and holding things back. Now, when I went out to talk to people about Brexit, and people in my own constituency knew exactly where Plaid Cymru stood on Brexit, yes, for a number of them, Brexit was the thing that they wanted done. But there was that great dissatisfaction that was being played upon, actually, of what politicians did. And the fact that as politicians, as parliamentarians, we use the resources at hand to us to best effect to try and further our beliefs and our policies, we were being held up as being part of the nuisance and part of the problem. And I think that that discussion within our society of perhaps the over-personalization of politics as opposed to the value of ideas and principles, and the one thing that I must say that for Margot and Antoinette, these are people who have stood on their principles. And that across party is something that I think we should be admiring and celebrating and seeing the, the deep sacrifices that people have made just to stand on their principles. That we need to come back to the fact that politics is not about the minutiae of personalities, whatever the Daily Mail wants it to be. Politics is about the ideas of how we live together and policies. And the one thing that I am comfortable, or that was not a comfortable the last election, was not a comfortable experience, is that as a politician I did stand by my principles and we argued for those, and I think that those politicians and those within their parties who, will be, who have done that in the past will be stood in good stead into the future to argue exactly their principles again. Excellent. Thank you for that, um, Liz. So, um, Philip, you can be the, the referee in this. Who's right? <laughs> <laughs> All of them. To <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think the, the period we're focusing on was, was a sort of perfect storm for parliamentary parties in terms of a coming together a number of factors, any one of which would have been difficult to manage. You, you have, the EU issue has always divided parties, but I think as Margot was saying, it tended to be a fringe of one party. Brexit created dissent on both wings of parties and among centralists and normally loyalists, and that made party management so much more difficult. Some of the normal tactics that party leaders would use of trying to reach compromise deals or offering promotion or sanctions just didn't work anymore. And then you've got the shock of the referendum, that often when parties change their position dramatically, it's because there's been an internal change of leadership or a new group, new Labour or Thatcherites take power. Brexit forced parties to change without that internal underpinning. 
left leaders out of touch with significant parts of their parties, but also there's a failure of leadership as well to, to craft credible positions. And then, of course, you've got a hung parliament minority government uh, that allows uh, rebels to have more influence than they would have done. Um, and then, I think we've heard from the panel, you've got those dilemmas that all MPs face really ramped up in terms of principle or party and constituency pressures as well. I think doing our research, one of the interesting things, the number of MPs who were aware of how their constituency voted and constantly referenced that, yes. uh, that makes life so much more difficult for parliamentary parties that MPs are pulled in all these different directions. Mm. I think some of that has changed. I think some of that have changed there. Majority government obviously changes the arithmetic and the psychology. The big set-piece votes on Brexit are done. Parliament's role, as we're hearing this morning, in terms of scrutiny, is going to be much more limited. There'll be less opportunity for the set-piece uh, rebellions. The main parties, it looks like, are going to try and lower the salience of the issue, move on to other things. But those constituency dilemmas are still there. And I think one of the things to watch is going to be these new Conservative MPs, 106 new Conservative MPs, more than two-thirds of them voted for leave. But many of them are in areas that are going to be hit hard by Brexit. And they, for the first time, will have to face those pressures of what are their local employers saying? What's the impact of Brexit going to be? And they will find themselves, uh, those difficulties, of to what extent do they follow the party position? To what extent are these Eurosceptics pragmatic? and how do they deal with these competing demands? It's an interesting um, point you touched on, and, and maybe this isn't the, 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 the purpose of the debate, but actually the, the role of an MP mm. was thrown in the spotlight as much about the fact there wasn't a majority, particularly after uh, 2017, because actually during the coalition, the government had a majority. So to a large extent, most of the time, people went along with the government line because mm. that was sort of part of the deal. And actually... Every MP try to work out well, what is their role is to do what they think is right, what their constituents think is right, what their leader think is right. Mm -hmm. uh, um, is it just based on what happened in, in 2016? Mm -hmm. The thing that um, I'll open it up for the whole panel, the, one of the questions which I think you've all slightly touched on is given that uh, a majority of people voted leave in 2016, and it's arguably the job of uh, elected MPs to deliver on uh, the outcome of that. Um, and given what happened in the 2019 election, where uh, the Conservatives got a majority based uh, in large part by, by promising to end the chaos, Theresa May's problem was in 2017, she was promising to continue the chaos, and by 2019, uh, Boris Johnson could promise to end it. That actually, part of the problem was that your parties especially um, weren't delivering what people voted for in 2016. And actually, the reason, ultimately, uh, you get punished three years later is because you spent three years trying to stop the thing that a majority of people voted for in, in 2016. Well, I, I'm not sure I agree with that, because um, if you look at what the vote leave promises were, this Brexit is very different from what was promised during the referendum campaign. And I really don't think there's been enough focus. Still, people still voted for it. They did, they did still vote for it. But I... I but they voted for a number of reasons, and I remember going back on the train, um, and I spoke about this in one of my speeches, where somebody came up to me and said, uh, are you Antoinette Savage? And I went, ooh. <laughs> I was thinking, oh no, what's coming now? And he said, I voted to leave in the referendum campaign. I only did it to give David Cameron a kicking. Please do something. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and, and, and 
And actually, I, don't, I think that that was one of the big successes, if you like, for the Brexit party and the ERG, that they claimed that 17.5 million people had voted for the same thing. And I simply don't think that that's true. People were told they weren't going to leave the single market. They were told that MPs would have a very strong say. I mean, all the vote leave promises are out there. And but people still, my point is that people still voted for him in 2019. My flip side to your anecdote would be, I voted to remain in 2016, and from the moment we voted to leave, I thought we should just get on and leave. Yeah. And I think there were awful, the, the election last year showed that there were quite a lot of people who agreed with that as well. Well, so the big failure was of opposition parties not to push the Conservative Party into a more moderate-centric Brexit. And it was also a failure of leadership, I think, by May, of May, by failing to get the Brit try and bring the whole country together and making it a Conservative Brexit and not a national endeavour. And something as big as this should be a national endeavour. And she failed, uh, to my mind, to build consensus. And the sketch writers earlier were, were talking about the 2017 speech. For me, um, 2016 was the disastrous speech because it set the red lines. It, it, called, it, it, it created very little room to reach out for a national conversation. And to my mind, that, that was the big mistake. And let's not forget, we haven't left yet. And one of the interesting things, none of us on the panel raised the threat to the union. You know, one of the reasons why May put forward the Chequers deal was because she, she needed a deal that could try and keep Northern Ireland and Scotland in the union of the United Kingdom. And what, uh, to my mind, the, what we still have to see is how... Um, devolution and the impact of Brexit plays on, on the Union. And that is the big unanswered question uh, that we will have go going forward. Mm. Stevie, can I um, bring you in? And uh, To what extent do you think we're wrongly seeing 2019 as the Brexit election? And was it actually a Corbyn election and that the public really didn't want him to be Prime Minister? And then throwing it forwards, um, how much of a problem is it going to be if the new leader of your party is the architect of the policy the Brexit policy, which you said was such a disaster? I think that it did play a major role, but there were three interconnected reasons for the disastrous performance on the 12th of December. A weak and incompetent leader, a manifesto that was a Christmas wish list, and our Brexit policy. And those three things, it's, it's not really possible to de-link them. And they had a, a multiplier effect, actually. Uh, they fed off each other. And, and really, the word that it leads you to is trust. And all three of those issues led to a, uh, they had a really corrosive effect on the extent to which uh, Labour was trusted. But you also have to recognise that in seats where there was uh, a 45% leave vote, there was only a 2% swing away from Labour to the Tories. In seats that voted more than 60%, it was a whopping 8% swing. So it, it's simply wrong to say that Brexit didn't play a massive role in the election. I think in terms of what could and shouldn't have been done. I mean, I suppose my, I agree absolutely that there was a real failure of leadership and a failure to compromise. But the way, it's not right to respond to a failure to compromise by failing to compromise. And uh, that, I'm afraid, once the Labour Party became, in essence, a kind of subsidiary of the People's Vote campaign, we moved away from compromise and towards, uh, you know, I voted Remain, I campaigned passionately for Remain. <laughs> But I felt that the, the, I could see the massive risk of, of we had a choice between a, a, what could have been a soft Brexit, particularly based on the uh, concessions that we had from the, the um, cross-party talks, and then possibly the, the chance of a Labour government versus 
uh, I knew that once Theresa May was gone, because we walked away, uh, they would elect a hard Brexiteer in the form of Boris Johnson, and the rest, as they say, is history. So I think it's just about uh, real realising sometimes that you have to compromise uh, in order to act in the national interest. And I, I hope that the big lesson we'll learn from the last few years is, is that that's the attitude that will go into these talks. Um, in terms of uh, if, uh, if Keir Starmer wins, look, I'm, I'm, I'm backing Lisa Nandy for the leadership, and partly because I think she'll be able to hit the ground running in terms of rebuilding trust with those red wall seats, because let's not face it, if, we lose, if we've lost them forever, that's the end of the Labour Party as a party of government. So the top priority is to rebuild the red wall. I think that Lisa will be able to do that more rapidly but there's absolutely no reason why uh, other candidates in the race uh, can't do the same. They just have to make it absolutely clear that we've learned from the mistakes of the last few years and that we then rebuild as a competent and effective opposition. Um, Margaret, given that what you were talking about and how uh, sort of investing in parts of the country being neglected, mm -hmm. not just the Midlands and the North, the South West as well, actually, it, to some extent, these, and it's a really patronising phrase, but the left behind areas or the the places neglected, uh, it turns out possibly more by uh, Labour over time. They, those places used the 2016 referendum as a way to give two fingers to the establishment, if you like, and by aligning with them, the Tories have reaped the benefit of that. Are we reading too much into it as being a sort of European issue? And actually, if you look at the, you know, some of the, I've got the YouGov uh, breakdown here, um, we were talking about some of the other polling earlier. Um, you know, there's a big class element in this. The Tories are now, you know, doing much better with the working class uh, than perhaps they used to. There's a big age dynamic that actually, that just putting it all down to whether or not you love the EU is, is sort of missing the point of it. Yeah, I think there's something in what you say. I mean, the, the, the European issue was a lightning rod yeah. um, that was used to conduct all these other battles. Um, and, I mean, certainly as a constituency MP, from between 2010 and... The referendum, I received next to no communication from my constituents about anything to do with the European Union. I think it was looked on as, you know, an unwanted necessity. It was never popular, which isn't surprising given the um, way that the majority of media, um, traditional media that in those days, um, covered European issues, and and the way that. Um, Westminster politicians always found it rather convenient to blame Europe for <laughs> deficiencies that actually had their origins in our own government and parliamentary system. So it was never loved. Um, but um, unfortunately, from my point of view, because I share Stephen's and Antoinette's antipathy to Brexit, although I accept it, um, unfortunately, uh, it was... It was the issue that um, divided the Conservative Party always going back, you know, even going back to the days of Thatcher. Uh, and the, that division was, was then sort of visited on the public by means of the referendum, which David Cameron thought he would win. Um, and George Osborne was all, always a lot more sanguine and never thought it was worth the risk. Um, and, of course, the collision in some of the points you were making, Matt, the collision between referendum and referenda and parliamentary democracy um, was a, became a real issue, mm. um, forcing MPs who believed as I did uh, to const constantly vote against what we believed was the best interests of the country, but in line with the referendum. 
um, particularly those of us in leave seats. My seat voted leave 64%. And by <coughs> stepping down, I basically, um, I parted from that like millstone that <laughs> hung around my neck for three or four years. And I don't miss that. I miss many other aspects, but I don't miss that. Don't miss the millstone. Um, Liz, what about uh, the union? As um, Antoinette touched on, uh, we get we hear a lot about, not least because oh, Nicholas Sturgeon won't stop talking about it, wanting a second referendum in Scotland. Where do we, where do you see, you know, not immediately this year, but five, ten years' time? What's Wales's place in the union? I'm going to start with Nicola Sturgeon's um, assertions in relation to the referendum. Well, she would, wouldn't she? <laughs> I mean, that's that's what that's what the SNP are there for. Yeah. And. Although it seems very far from here, and I was in one of the independence rallies, all under one banner rallies in Glasgow just after, just after Christmas, and the sense of emotion there after an election of a right-wing majority government is that a referendum is actually, a, you know, if it went ahead, possibly we'll see where it is with Alex Hammond's court case, but if it went ahead certainly then, it probably would have been successful. And you also look at what Boris Johnson said about Northern Ireland, um, the cavalier way that he treated the DUP, the way that perhaps our expectations of how politics operates in Northern Ireland is a bit, perhaps a bit simplistic here in Westminster, that there are generational changes there, which are quite, uh, thank you very much, quite, quite different perhaps to how, how Northern Ireland is normally portrayed here. So there is one of the scenarios to move ahead is, first of all, a, a reunited Ireland, um, with Sinn Féin having done so well in the Republic's election recently. A reunited Ireland. Then that begs the question of what would happen in Scotland. And then for somewhere in Wales, where we have our own devolution, that then begs the question is how do England and Wales then operate together when we have a, a devolution settlement that is um, defined by the former um, Lord Chief Justice of the Supreme Court as having a jagged edge and not, being, not enabling itself to operate properly in one way, one way or the other. So these are questions that are waiting to, to, to happen. And it is, of course, very interesting. Margot was talking about the, the, the economic needs of different regions of England. Well, of course, in Wales, we have... The, 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 in terms of, of deprivation, one of the poorest regions of, of, of Western Europe. Now, this has been, nonetheless, with Westminster, able to solve that at any time in the past, regardless. What this will, how this will be taken up now when the, the excuse, if you like, that it's all Europe's fault and we can't do anything about it has gone. And I think, Antoinette, you mentioned as well that, that in the past of, of, of putting the blame on, on, on Europe as carrying the can as to why we can't do something actually isn't going to, to carry, to, to, to be sufficient anymore. Um, again, that is interesting because it's quite, it's quite possible now to track who actually is going to carry the can as we move ahead. But those questions about the union are now in effect. We shall see how those roll out. Just one word on that issue. Uh, if we get a hard Brexit, meaning coming out of the single market and the customs union, which seems to be highly likely, I actually think that could have, uh, uh, it could cause difficulties for the nationalists across the UK because uh, that would, you'd be essentially making the case for independence based on having a hard border between England and Scotland and a hard border between England and Wales. And I think making the economic case for having hard borders in those places 
uh, makes a difficult economic case, I think, more or less impossible to make. But yeah. uh, it's just one thing to watch because in a, in a paradoxical way, a hard Brexit, whilst it will cause uh, outrage, certainly in terms of the political and uh, the political dynamics, it will have a very different effect on the economic dynamics. Yeah. And very quickly to respond to that, the economic ar arguments didn't work for Remain and Brexit. There are emotional arguments to do with to what degree Westminster is actually interested in Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales. And those arguments, of course, will still be powerful. At the risk of getting bogged down in an uh, independence uh, discussion, I'm just gonna, I'll come to Philip at the end so you can, you can round up. I just want to ask you very quickly, in only a sort of couple of sentences, we've got four years now, potentially, until the next general election. What's the sort of best and worst case scenario you see it for your own parties? We'll work along the last stop you, Stephen. Uh, do you mean in terms of how many seats we're going to win? What's the best you can hope for and what's the risk for your, your party over the next few years? Um, look, I, I think there's a real risk that we will continue to be a party more of the cities than the small towns, that we'll continue to be seen as a sort of <coughs> exclusively metropolitan, cosmopolitan party and not actually connecting with the people that the Labour Party was founded to represent, particularly people in constituencies like mine. So we've got to find a way of building what Lisa Nandy, I think, very evocatively calls a red bridge uh, rebuild the Labour coalition, and I think that's got to be the top priority for the next few years. Lisa Nandy, next Prime Minister? Well, I, look, look, I think she could change the game. Uh, I think that Lisa um, is not the safe choice for... She's the brave choice for Labour Party members, uh, but I think if you see how she's delivered in this campaign, um, her media performances, she's just going to... She can change the game in a way that the other uh, candidates can't do, and I think that's what we need. Uh, we can't play it safe. We've got to be able to take some risks. Margot, what's the risks for Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, over the next few years? I think the risk is that the economy doesn't perform as we would all wish it to perform. I think that is the, the risk, and that is obviously connected to the final outcome of the Brexit um, negotiations. Um, and it's too soon to predict, I think, what might happen there. But whatever the outcome, it has to protect our trade with the European Union and the jobs that depend upon it. Um, and that, to me, is, is the priority. And if the government can get that right in a way that enables them to, to do the trade deals they want to do elsewhere, um, then the economy could, uh, could continue to perform well. We have great strengths particularly with the digital sector I used to represent in government. Um, our technology industry in this country is, outperforms the rest of Europe. Um, and if we can digitise manufacturing and really accelerate the uptake of technology, I think that we can, in the public sector as well, uh, reap huge benefits in terms of productivity, improvements, greater competitiveness. Um, but in order to fund an in the investment that we need as a country in infrastructure, um, particularly in those regions I was talking about earlier, in order to fund um, the necessary difficult areas of policy like social care, uh, we do need that economy to grow um, significantly and substantially. And if the Conservative Party in government can achieve that, I think it will be re-elected. And if it can't, then anything could happen. Antoinette, from one extreme to another, what, what, what's the best hope for the, for the Lib Dems over the next few years? 
Well, I think there's a very changing demographic, and I think those that have, have um, grown up in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, who've known free movement, who've known um, the ability to live and work in European countries, um, plus um, their children, who will know, and I feel that very strongly. My daughter's about to leave school. She may be one of the last of her group, peer group to actually be able to go and have a gap year that, where she can work freely in, in Europe because that will end in October. And I think um, the real uh, opportunity for the Lib Dems is they need to reach out into the more rural areas where they used to have a very strong presence but seem to have lost that presence now. They have to keep uh, people that got very engaged with them engaged. And that means talking about things wider than Europe and the... In, uh, actually in the way that we did in our manifesto, but we're, where we're not having the breakthrough. And that means concentrating on local. But we still need to keep our internationalist approach, because that's what makes Lib Dems Lib Dems. We need to keep our internationalist approach. We need to argue for that internationalist approach, uh, and we need to build on it, because I think the risk is we are going to get that hard Brexit. We are going to see very, very severe impacts on various sectors of our community, and we need to be front and centre, making the call for reaching out and building relationships across Europe and beyond. Please. Elections in Wales next year, 2021. We've had Labour in power for 21 years. And the lack of, the, even though the, the, the dynamics have changed related to that. So for Ply Cymru to be in the position to hold power in Wales to make a difference to people's lives, which is desperately needed. How likely do you think that is? We have an interesting voting system. We had a volatile <laughs> year last year. I'm very cautious about making predictions, but I think we have... We are... We're probably not very good politicians. I'm supposed to say things with great confidence in that respect. But there is every reason to expect that there could be change, and we need change. So... <laughs> do you want to pull all that, all that together into where, where you think we might be going, what, the impact of Brexit going forward? Yes, I, I think the, the question is, are we going to enter a period of politics as used to be seen as normal, uh, where we're back to left-right issues? And I think there is potential for Brexit to turn into issues over regulatory alignment versus regulatory divergence. And, and sort of counterintuitively, we might see, as perhaps Margot was hinting at, that the, the Tory, Thatcherite, Eurosceptics win on Brexit but start losing ground to One Nation Conservatives elsewhere. And I suspect the left-right issues are where Labour will try to focus, given, uh, given the candidates' different views on, on, on Brexit. Uh, I think another thing that, that's worth picking up is uh, Stephen talking about the, the different factors that, that led to the 2019 election result. And the importance of competence and trust is, is likely to, to be to re-established re even more uh, over time. And if, if Brexit does go badly, then, you know, Johnson's pledges about getting it done and so forth are, are likely to have consequences, I think. But the parties, the main parties, are all dealing with very different support bases. If you think about the Blair period to now, or even the Cameron period to now, the, the, the parties are fundamentally different in terms of what they look like in Westminster and what they look like <coughs> on the ground. Yeah. Uh, the Conservatives are a party making gains amongst working class. Labour's a party making gains, as, as Stephen was saying, <coughs> in cities and amongst graduates and so forth. The Liberal Democrats, uh, its vote now is very different from it was in the, in the Nick Clegg period. You know, it used to have strengths in uh, South West England, now it's Spencer in uh, strong Remain areas. And the parties have to grapple with uh, how volatile the electorate is and how long 
these leave or remain identities are likely to be baked into voters' calculations. So I think there is some sense into which we might be entering a period of, of, of Brexit dissipating a bit in terms of being the predominant issue. That doesn't necessarily mean it's any clearer to seeing how party competition, intra-party divisions are going to look in future. And I think there's probably, just to wind up, there's probably always a risk that because the government's got a majority of 80, we sort of think, well, that's it now. That's the, we always think the position we're in is the, is the mm. final one in the way that we thought that the 2015 result was and then we thought we were, you know... And so, given it 12 months ago if we were having this event, and I think actually there might have been, um, the conversation had been how the Tories could never win again. They were finished as a, as a political force. The Brexit Party was taking over and it was all, it was all sort of done in... Mm. Basically, don't listen to any predictions. Is there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't make any either. Yeah, I asked some stupid questions and they all daftly answered it. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I was supposed to take quite... We've got, we've got five minutes. Let's take a couple of questions. Um, I've completely failed in my job of chairing. The gentleman there waving the brochure. My name's David Cole. I've predictions. Oh, there's a microphone coming to you. Sprinting towards you. Hi, my name's Tony Cole. Catchway, and talking about predictions... Do you see in between now and, let's say, the next general election, a new party being formed uh, that may be a force to be reckoned with? And a quick other question, if I may. Now that the uh, bogeyman doesn't exist anymore, who do you think would politicians start blaming for their failures? That's good, because there are two questions that can both be answered with a single word. Uh, a new party and who's the new bogeyman? Stephen? Um, I support what colleagues have said about proportional representation. Uh, I think if we had a proportional representation system, you could potentially have a new party that might actually get some seats. But as long as First Past the Post exists, we surely have to learn the lesson of Change UK and others that have tried to do it. It's, it's mm. virtually impossible to do within the straitjacket of our electoral system. In terms of who is the bogeyman, well, I, I do, you know, Michael Gove is on the record <laughs> as saying, uh, we own it. So I think we should just blame Michael Gove. <laughs> Margot? Um, I think a new party um, idea seriously overestimates the public's interest in politics um, and I don't see one coming anytime soon um, and I don't think the new bogeyman is, is, is yet to emerge. I can, I can think of a number of, uh, number of my former colleagues I could identify that role but I will, I will maintain a silence on that one. Your former colleagues, officials and civil servants seem to be the current bogeyman. Um, Certainly uh, not for me they were. <laughs> Answer it. Um, so I'd, uh, I think the lesson of Change UK is that a new party won't um, emerge. I, th I think that was probably a bruising experience for all involved. Um, I very much hope the new bogeyman won't be the judges, but I fear it will be. Um, my concern is that, um, that Parliament will try and undermine uh, one of the great pillars of our constitution, which is judicial independence. So please let's guard against that. Mm. Liz? I think it'll be interesting with the, basically with the two-party system, as to how the, the new blue wall Tory MPs uh, cope with the reality of their constituencies and, and where they sit comfortably and where their careers sit comfortably within, their, within, the, within, 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 within Parliament. I think the, the commission on to the Constitution and, and, and judicial powers will be very interesting, although the fact that, of course... Um, judges have found against Heathrow may actually do them uh, themselves some favours <laughs> fairly recently from that direction. 
I agree that the case, that the likelihood of a new party emerging is, is much less because of the experience of Change UK, but I think I disagree with some of the past. I think the case for proportional representation has probably been fundamentally weakened by the experience of the last hung parliament. And if we assume yeah. that constitutional change requires a referendum to go ahead, it's hard to see how a referendum on electoral reform would, would win. A referendum within a parliament permanently without a majority yeah. doesn't sound like a recipe for my good can do it without a referendum. If yeah. you get a majority yeah, of parties, true. progressive parties have it in their manifesto and win a majority. Yeah. Have we got time for one more question? Yeah, one nice, like that, not a big statement, and <laughs> what people can answer. Yeah, uh, gentleman over there in the blue shirt. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you. Uh, it's been somewhat alluded to on the... Uh, as you've been talking, but one of the phenomena that has occurred in recent elections is the huge degree of churn between parties in terms of who's voting for whom. Um, the obvious example is the Red Wall, but also the Lib Dems only hold two of the eight seats they held on to in 2015. So where do you expect these... The, what effect do you expect these changes to have in terms of how parties position for themselves in the future? Interesting. The churn and the... Vol I think we've probably all touched on it. The volatility just makes it more unpredictable. So, so I think the research shows that people are becoming much less loyal to parties that they traditionally voted for and ha are becoming much more identified with their Brexit votes. And as we move on and there's a change in, in voters because people, a number of, because of the age dynamics of those that voted for Brexit and didn't, I think there will be a shift in, in the parties. And as Stephen says, if, it's in, if we have PR in, uh, uh, in our manifestos, um, I think there is an opportunity to deliver it. But I think over time that there will be a change in the way that, that, that people vote. I mean, I, I, I don't often say this, but I did agree with Boris Johnson uh, when he said that he, he understands that a lot of people's uh, hand wavered over the ballot paper before they put a cross mm -hmm. in the Conservative box, uh, particularly in the so-called red wall seats. I, I actually agree with that because in the conversations that I had in my constituency, uh, you know, there, there is still a tribal loyalty to Labour, but it has to be a, a part, we have to be a party that responds to what people see as a party that is on your side, that respects you, that doesn't patronise you, that is connected to your values and what you see as uh, the, the, the Labour Party that we all know we can be. And I, I, so my most fervent hope is that Boris Johnson was right, and in fact those people were only lending their votes to the Labour Party, that they will come back home to us, uh, and that will be the major part of the churn at the next general election is rebuilding that red wall, which has to be the foundation for making us a party of government again. Unfortunately, I think that before we've got time for, but I think it basically means that anything could happen. Uh, yeah. is, uh, <laughs> is the way to sum up all that. Uh, my huge thanks to the panel, Stephen, uh, Margot, Antoinette, Liz and Philip. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.